0: So what I want to do is begin by making a concrete statement, which sort of is a development of something which I said earlier. First and most importantly, Christian morality is not about following rules or primarily about following rules, but about following a person. Christian morality is not primarily about following rules, but following a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And this is why I had you read that first section of Veritatis Splendor. John Paul II begins it by the call of the rich young man to follow Jesus. Sell what you have and come follow me. This is Veritatis Splendor, number 19. Following Christ is thus the essential and primordial foundation of Christian morality, not following rules, not being virtuous. Those are important, but the foundation is following the person of Jesus. Just as the people of Israel followed God who led them through the desert towards the promised land, so every disciple must follow Jesus towards whom he is drawn by the Father himself. We're going to get into that later. If you look at your catechism, and we're going to keep going back to the catechism, the section on morality is called what? Life in Christ. Exactly. We are predestined, chosen in Christ. We share in his sonship. And so, which is interesting, we can phrase this. I can't remember where I read this. When it comes to Christian morality, Logos is greater than ethos. The word of God, Jesus, is greater than ethos. Not that ethos isn't important. Logos is more important. So, a side note, which you probably studied in Christology, or you will, what makes Jesus as a, a religious leader, as a prophetic figure, as a religious founder, different than, let's say, uh, the founder of the Tao or the Buddha or the Eightfold Way or even Moses and the Law? What makes him different? True, we're gonna get to that, but, but no, like what makes his moral teaching different as a, as a leader? Bingo, that's it, exactly. Here is the, the, the Ten Commandments. Here is the Tao. Here is the Eightfold Way. Christ taught his commandments, the twofold commandment to love God and a neighbor, but he said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Muhammad didn't do that. Joseph Smith surely didn't do that. Moses didn't do that. Jesus did. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He identified it with himself, the person. So that's it. He's more than just a, 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 conc- a moral teacher, or prophet. What, what Balthazar calls him, and I, we're not going to actually read his essay, Christ is the concrete norm of morality. Jesus is the concrete norm. In him, we see Christian morality live. John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor, 15. Jesus himself is the living fulfillment of the law inasmuch as he fulfills its authentic meaning by the total gift of himself. He himself becomes a living and personal law who invites people to follow him. Through the spirit, he gives the grace to share his own life and love and provides the strength to bear witness to that love in personal choices and actions. So Jesus is the concrete norm. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the meaning of human existence. In Christ, we, man finds meaning of himself, who we are. This is Second Vatican Council. Now, this all sounds great. And this is kind of, again, where my own, like, you can preach about this all you want. It sounds great. We need to follow the person of Jesus. But how do you do it? What does this even mean? It was one of the things we're going to say, like we're talking about grace. What is it, we use this term all the time. What does it even mean? Most us go to know what it means. We just rah, talk about it. What does it mean to follow Jesus more than laws? Well, the first way we can understand this is the following of his teachings, an extrinsic following. Well, we have the new law, the Sermon of the Mount, the 2 old commandment. And this is valid, we, we need to follow these things. But Christ is more than just a moral teacher and Christianity is more than just a moral code. I don't know, how many of you are familiar with Father Luigi Giussani? All right, founder of Communion Liberation. Uh, towards the end of his life, he had written a series of essays and he talked about the problem of the 20th century is that Christianity was reduced to morality. It's all about when preaching and ethics and do this and do that, rather than the person of Christ and the transformation in Jesus. It's not that we don't talk about ethical issues, but it's reduced to that. Probably the best, most concise expression of this comes from, we're going to talk about him a lot, not just because he just passed away, but Pope Benedict and Deus Caritas Est being christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea but the encounter with an event a person which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction if you know luigi Giussani, that's that's cl language communion liberation language it's the encounter of the person of jesus encounter jesus like the apostles on the shore we read that. Uh, what was it? The Gospel from a few weeks ago. The encounter of John on the shore. What was that? What that phrase? When he says, "Hey, come and you will see." Where do you live, Master? Come and you will see. And what what, what detail does John give? What time? What time in the afternoon was it? Four. It was so decisive. It was so life-changing. He knew where he was. He knew the exact time of day. And think of it. Things that have been important in your life, whether they be spiritual, or tragic. I remember exactly where I was on September 11th. I remember the weather was like. I remember exactly what was going on when I heard about the planes crashing. And so here, this is so decisive for John's life, this encounter with Jesus. He became his disciple and followed him. Now, this is the question, though. This is wonderful for John and, and James and Peter. How do we encounter Jesus today? Is it possible to encounter Jesus today? Yes. Why? Because sister gave us the answer. Because he is alive. And this is a whole separate thing. But why are we? Why are we Christians? I love to ask you this question. Why are we Christians? Why are we? Why are you a Christian? John, why are you a Christian? Because Jesus died and rose again to save him. Yeah. Because a dude died and rose from the dead and is still alive today. It's not because of his moral teaching. It's not even because of his crucifixion. Paul says, if Christ has not risen from the dead, our faith is what? In vain. This is, do you realize this is craziness, y'all? We believe there was a man 2,000 years ago that you never met that claimed to be God, died and came back from the dead, and we believe is still alive today and walking through walls or could walk through walls. He's a body. The belief in the resurrection is central. And that's, why, that's why the apostles died for their faith. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they saw. We saw this dude. He was dead, and he is alive. And we put our finger in his side, and he's alive today. So for me, it's it's. Can we? Can you defend? If I press you on the resurrection, can you defend why you believe in the resurrection? Most Christians cannot. Most seminarians can't. But that's not for here or there. Sister can defend herself, but we're not going to make her do that today. Where do we encounter him if he's alive? Well, we encounter him in prayer. and the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, it's really where we encounter the risen Jesus. You receive the risen flesh of the Lord. In scripture. In the church. Through others. Notice, though, that most of these encounters are mediated, not direct. Mediated through the sacrament, through the church, through the word. So we encounter the risen Lord Jesus. And from that... There's a change. There is a conversion. This is like a whole separate class that, you know, I've kind of adapted. Jesus is more than a moral teacher. He's the Messiah. He is the redeemer of man. He came not just to teach us the way to live, but he came to die for us. For our sins, to sanctify us, to justify us. He became sin for us because of our sin, we were cut off from God took on our sin he died and rose so that we might live this is the good news the good news is is he guess what jesus came and died and rose to life so you can get to heaven that's how much he loves you so that there there's this great good news of salvation but did jesus ever say hey everybody believe the good news did jesus ever say that nope what did he say Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel of salvation. Mark 1.15, repenting from sin. This is Ratzinger from his homilies uh, on Genesis in the beginning. He says, we speak a great deal and like to speak about evangelization and the good news in such a way as to make Christianity attractive to people. But hardly anyone dares nowadays to proclaim the prophetic message, repent. Repent. Hardly anyone dares to make to our age this elementary evangelical appeal with which the Lord wants to induce us to a knowledge of our sinfulness, to do penance, and to become other than what we are. We're sinners. The Lord, thankfully, is very merciful and understands that most often sin is out of weakness and imperfection. But we still have to repent. So there's an encounter. There's a, convert, a repentance from sin Christ points out our our sin. He doesn't humiliate us. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't accuse us. Christ is never the accuser. We're going to look at that. But that repentance leads to conversion, the Greek word being metanoia, a change of mind, a change of heart. I'd had that article as one of the mandatory ones, but I moved it to the non-required ones. But read it. It's great. Generally, everything you read from Ratzinger is going to be great, partially because he's so concise. It's like it's like that bridge jump all the bridge, John Paul II. So Augustine will talk about it as the turning away from sin in the world and a turning to Christ to follow Him. So that's the thing: we're, we're turning away from sin, we're turning away from our attachments. This was the call of the rich young man who couldn't do it. Or if I was interested with Father Father's uh, interpretation yesterday, that it was sad because he had to turn away from things. But listen to Pope Benedict again, Ash Wednesday, 2010, is homily. With conversion, on the other hand, we are aiming for the high standard of Christian living. We entrust ourselves to the living and personal go- gospel, which is Jesus Christ. He is our final goal and the profound meaning of conversion. He is the path on which all are called to walk through life letting themselves be illuminated by his light and sustained by his power, which moves our steps. So the thing is, it's positive. It's not just turning away from evil. We can focus on that, but it's choosing the positive good. We'll talk about this later on. I can tell you, hey, don't eat Twinkies and boudin all the time, because it's bad for you. But boy, it will be really hard to turn away from the donuts. Instead, choose healthy. When you desire the positive good of health, you're not interested in the other stuff. When you encounter the love of Christ, hopefully over time you will become less interested in that sin that draws you away from him. It doesn't mean at first you need to convert from that, but it's more, it's more about turning towards Jesus than turning away from sin in the world. And that's where prayer and the counter with the risen Lord is important. It's the story of the rich young man. That's why John Paul II puts it at the beginning. It's not easy to give up the attachments. It's not easy to give up sin. But the father will, Jesus will never force you. So I love the prodigal son. We're going to go back to this over and over again. The older son, he does not force to come into the house. He doesn't say, go drag him in here. He, it's a state of self-exclusion. We exclude ourselves from the father's house. And the father will never force us. Jesus is never going to force you to follow him. He doesn't say, Hey, Peter, John, grab this rich young man. He's coming with us whether he likes it or not. (laughs) Nope. He offers the grace, but we can turn that grace down. So repentance, conversion from sin to Jesus, but it's not just, hey, Jesus, I love you. It's a call to follow him. And that conversion is not easy. We're going to talk about it. Giving up sin, giving up concupiscence is not easy entails a death to self. But what does this being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, mean? What does it mean? Well, just like we saw before, following Jesus is not just following rules, but following a person. So following him is, on the first level, following his example, the imitation of Christ. John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor 20. Jesus asks us to follow him and to imitate him along the path of love, a love which gives itself completely to the brethren out of love of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The word as requires imitation of Jesus and of his love, of which the washing of feet is a sign. Jesus' way of acting and his words, his deeds, and his precepts constitute the moral rule of the Christian life. How did Jesus act? We want to imitate him. He is the exemplar. Act as he did. Treat others as he did. Love as he did. You know the book, The Imitation of Christ? How many of you know where it came from? Just a little strange question. Why Thomas A. Kempis wrote it? When Thomas A. Kempis wrote it? Go figure it out interesting it's just they, i would bring this up he wrote it it is significantly anti-philosophical as a reaction to like the, the the schools and all the philosophy and it's almost faith alone i'm not saying it's not a good thing but i'm just bringing that up it's a little trivia i'll bring trivia up sometimes you also know why thomas a campus is not canonized you'll know that they found claw marks in his tomb, so we can't be assured that he didn't despair at the end. In his, his casket, that's what they say. That he, they, back then they'd bury. You might like have an epileptic seizure, and they just like, oh, he's dead. Let's put him in the ground. Kind of woke up and freaked out. But here's the thing, y'all. It can't just be the outward imitation. It can't. Oh, being a Christian is—we're gonna—if if we're gonna say it's—it's it's following a person, not just rules. Then it just can't be said. Well, Jesus did this. I need to do this. Following Christ has to be something more. And so, John Paul II will continue in Veritatis Splendor 21. Following Christ is not an outward imitation, since it touches man at the very depths of his being. Being a follower of Christ means becoming conformed to Him who became a servant, even to giving himself on the cross. Christ dwells by faith in the heart of the believer, and thus the disciple is conformed to the Lord. This is the effect of grace, of the active presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So we're gonna talk about this. The Spirit transforms us, but there's gotta be an interior transformation. Our hearts become the hearts of Jesus. We become conformed to him. That's what the sequela Christi, this is what the lesson is called, the following of Christ is really about, an interior transformation where we are conformed to Jesus. Listen to Ratzinger, and this is going to be from one of the readings that I gave you. The sequela, the following of Christ, does not mean imitating Jesus the man. This type of attempt would necessarily fail. It would be an anachronism, trying to live as someone did 2,000 years ago. The sequela Christi, the following of Christ, leads to a much higher goal, to be assimilated into Christ, that is, to attain union with God. Such a goal might sound strange to the ears of modern man, but in truth, we all thirst for the infinite, for an infinite freedom, for happiness without limits. We're, we're unquote, we're assimilated into Jesus, we become part of his body, the church. But I don't think just conform to him. We are called to be other Christs. For Jesus to live in and through us. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live... In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is especially true for priests who are called to act in the person of Christ. We become empty so that Christ can fill us up. We put off our ways of sin to become the new man. Ephesians 4, verse 24. Now we're going to see this. Going down in baptism, we rise to new life. We leave behind the life of the flesh and adopt a life in the spirit. We are transformed in Christ by grace very gradually. We become more meek, more humble of heart. We become more Christ-like. Th- this is the interior transformation. Ratzinger in his Metanoia article talks about von Dietrich von Hildebrand's book, The Transformation in Christ, where he emphasizes not just the following the rules that the casuists and the manualists promoted, a deep transformation. The rise of that German personalism in the beginning of the 20th century. But how does it come? How primarily does this transformation of Christ come? Through grace, through the Spirit, yeah. But what does Paul say? What does Jesus himself say? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and... Pick up his bottle of whiskey and come follow me. There's nothing wrong with whiskey in moderation. But is that what Jesus says? No. If you want to follow me, lay on your couch and binge watch Mandalorian season three and follow me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, pick up your cross and follow me for whoever... Would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So following Christ and being transformed into him through that interior following means carrying the cross, death to self, martyrdom. I wish it wasn't that way. If I was the Messiah, it'd have been a lot easier. It would have been through drinking some whiskey, maybe going out to a nice restaurant, taking a nap. Sorry, I'm not Jesus. It's through the cross. That's how we're transformed. Suffering, as we'll see, not just suffering for suffering's sake, but suffering done out of love. Ratzinger rat singer again. To follow Christ means to accept the inner essence of the cross, namely the radical love expressed therein. It's the love. It's not just the cross. That's not just torture. It's the self-gift of love. The willingness to suffer for the other. For on the cross, God revealed himself as the one who pours himself out, who surrenders his glory in order to be present for us, who desires to rule the world, not by power, but by love. And in the weakness of the cross, reveals his power, which operates so differently from the power of this world's mighty rulers. Love animates. That's that article that I gave from Ratzinger for you to read. You will read it a little bit later on. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means one who loves. It's not just follow the cross. Because it just pick up the cross sucks. It will crush you. It will destroy you. But if you offer it, you realize that the, you can offer it for others out of love. You're suffering for the one that you love. It gives purpose to it. It doesn't always mean it's going to feel good. But other than that, it's not just the cross that crushes. But there's hope, too, because the cross leads to the resurrection. So it's not just, and I think it's it's a better way of fleshing it out, it's not just living the cross, but living the Paschal mystery. In our bodies, we experience the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're sharing in the power of the resurrection. Through baptism, through the gift of the Spirit. Does this make sense? So, so this is all like, okay, if your Christian life is not going to make sense unless you adopt this, particularly today. This will be a bunch of rules, and it's going to, and you're going to hate it. And you're going to see people in confession all the time. Come in and just giving the Ten Commandments. You're a 30-year-old man. You should be on, you should have integrated the Ten Commandments. It's not that you ever go beyond it, but it's simply a following of rules. There's no pursuit of virtue. Do you pray? Ask people that in confession. Tell me about your prayer life. I say three Hail Marys before I go to bed when I go to sleep. That's saying prayers. That's not praying. Do you actually pray? Do you encounter Jesus? Most people don't. So yeah, you could teach people the moral life, but you got to evangelize them. you got to teach them to pray. But why do they want to pray if they don't believe the Lord loves them? I mean, this is all a much bigger problem that we're going to fix, but it's part of it. But for you, of course, who are here, when this this transformation in Christ, this becoming Christ, is never fully complete, at least on this earth. Even I you're continually transformed in heaven. You're always on a journey. It is continuous conversion, continuous transformation. There's a long quote from Ratzinger from a, a message on october thirtieth, two thousand nine. the repent and believe in the gospel is not only at the beginning of christian life but accompanies it throughout endures is renewed and spreads branching out into all its expressions every day is a favorable moment of grace because every day presses us to give ourselves to jesus to trust in him to abide in him to share his lifestyle to learn true love from him to follow him in the daily fulfillment of the father's will and the one great law of life. Every day, even when it is fraught with difficulties and toil, weariness and setbacks, even when we are tempted to leave the path of the following of Christ and withdraw into ourselves, into our selfishness, without realizing our need to open ourselves to the love of God in Christ, to live the same logic of justice and love. Even when we don't want to do it, even when we don't know why we're doing it, it's still there. It's a constant transformation. So what does this sound like? Yes. Uh, it's from Ratzinger's, Benedict's message on October 30th, 2009. You can read the whole homily. It's beautiful. Well, the whole Wednesday audience. So what does this sound like? So it, it's, it is. It is suffering. It is the cross. And sometimes you're going to face big crosses. But where does the transformation really happen? It happens on the daily basis. So it's interesting, Ratzinger brings up in that article, The Little Way, in Pope John the 23rd, the little daily sufferings, the chances to be kind to that person when you don't want to, to show virtue, that stupid person who won't take a ride on red. It's the daily carrying of the cross that transforms. It's it's interesting. He gets into this this etymology of progress versus proficiency. So what what does progress means? You're moving forward. You're going to have setbacks, but you're constantly going forward. It's a constant. We're not giving up. Others are there to help us carry the cross. Come on, let's do it. We're moving forward. We're going up the mountain. We're not giving up. And and we're going to see this a lot, and I'm going to emphasize this. You're going to fail you're going to fail. And the key is, somehow in failure is how you become holy. This is the brilliance of it. Sometimes you're going to be successful and you're going to do the super virtuous thing and Jesus is going to love you. But then other times you're going to fall flat on your face. And you're going to want to despair and hate yourself because you're not perfect. You didn't perform well. But if you go run and ask the Lord's mercy never presuming on God's mercy, but run his mercy, it's transformative. We will learn, we're going to talk a lot about one of the biggest threats to the Christian moral life today, and it's it's the counterintuitive antidote. But we're going to get to that probably in a week or two. But fortunately, Jesus is patient with us. Think of it. Peter, how many times did Peter fall? And Jesus never said, I'm done with you, I'm making Andrew Pope. No. Pope Francis talks about how we've become closer to Jesus with many, many meanings with him. The many times that we fall, that we start sinking, that we don't trust. And his power is going to be perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 to 9. It keeps us humble, grounded in him. And the more we experience the Lord's mercy and patience in our own lives, guess what that means? We are hopefully going to be more patient and merciful to others, particularly as priests. So that's the thing. Fellas, how are you going to become merciful and loving priests? You're going to fall flat on your face. Repeatedly. And you are going to accept the Lord's mercy and know that you're not perfect, and his power is going to shine through your weakness. And that way, you're going to be a disciple and not a jerk. Get ready. Get ready. What do you mean? Oh, I can give you plenty of examples of my own life. Times. I'll give you the best example of my own life. I'm going to give it very briefly because I want you all. So I hate people leaving Mass early. hate it. It's, like it's disrespectful. I've given the whole Judas thing and all that. I remember, let's see this couple. Right after communion, leave. all the way in the back of the church i couldn't i couldn't couldn't see who they were steam coming out of my ears like the so much steam that the hosts were getting sticky in my hands and then i have a bad temper it's much more under control but after the you know I was the body of christ body of christ afterwards you know i give the final prayer and everything i'm like taking the gold plating off the chalice i'm so angry I told people, I said, let me tell you right now, don't you leave early. And if we find out who those people left early, tell them they have to go back to mass. Can't do that. Pops over. he's got out. So I'm after mass and I'm greeting everybody, and this one lady comes up to me and says, Father, um, that couple that left early, um they didn't leave early to be disrespectful uh because um he started throwing up everywhere. <laughs> And I said, oh, my gosh, I just, I made a big mistake. And then she said, yeah, and there's something else. And I said, what's that? You're doing their wedding next weekend. Oh, So, this big. So I, I called him up and I said, hey, y'all, I heard it was y'all who left. I am so terribly sorry that I embarrassed you, because they didn't hear me yelling afterwards. You're going to hear about it. (laughs) If you want someone else to do your wedding, I totally understand, I am so sorry. I promise you, at every Daily Mass this week and every week and next week, I will apologize. And they forgave me. And I did their wedding. And they've had a bunch of kids, and it's great. That's a very extreme example. (laughs) You know, I've made my bishops mad, you know, you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. But I mean, again, a part of it is like, uh, even a small one, you, you, you are short with somebody in confession. Or you try to give a homily and you didn't land the plane. <laughs> or, you know, huh? You crashed, you crashed the plane. plane. I prefer you crashing the plane and than in the runway for about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, and, and particularly I think your parishioners, when your parishioners show you mercy and your bishop shows you mercy, Ah, then you're gonna be more likely. But we'll get into that more later. Here's the most important point, though, as we're pretend we're beginning to land the plane. Without a personal relationship with Jesus, Christian morality will make no sense. No sense. Maybe intellectually it will, but practically today, trying to just give principles without a person really encountering the Lord and knowing him and desiring to follow him. In a sense, you could say it's going to make no sense, but it's just going to be this oppressive burden that is just going to crush. Without this relationship with Christ, the moral life just becomes burdensome. A bunch of rules to follow. And yeah, people may do it all their lives, but they're like zombies uh, just kind of going through life. There's never any particular moral growth. There's never a desire and that's why I think so many people tend to reject it. Or what will happen is we'll just sort of shoot for the minimum. Let me see what I can get away with. How, much can I go, how far can I go with my girlfriend before it becomes a moral sin? How many beers can I drink, can I funnel before it becomes a moral sin? Don't funnel any beers. You're getting into problematic areas right away. This is especially true with sexual ethics and bioethics. Unless you have a certain worldview infused by Christianity and sacramentality, uh, it's just going to be a bunch of rules. And I think it's true for so many cultural Catholics. People that you'll see come to Mass. They're raised Catholic. They know the basics, more or less, but they've never taken ownership of their faith. They've never encountered Jesus. I know this is a very negative view of things, but they're just, why are you Catholic? Well, I was raised that way. Have you encountered the Lord? Have you had a gift? Felt the power of the Spirit in your life? Have you fanned into flame the gifts that were given to you? Nope. Most people are just practical atheists. Jesus loves them. I'm not saying they're bad people, but they go and they say a few prayers, and you will hear me say this: saying prayers is not necessarily praying. It's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily praying. You're not letting the Lord encounter you. Oh, well, you're just, just saying a few little things. Oh, I said my prayers. It's my, my duty. I checked it off. Ooh, I'm gone to we'll play golf. Go take a nap. Whatever. This is why I think on a pastoral dimension, evangelization has to come before catechesis. Catholic schools. You're sitting there. Up, oh, junior. You got to teach morality. These kids don't believe. They don't. They are hurting. They're, they're. It's not. And many of them are very wounded. Come from broken families. And you're going to say, I, I am going to double down on this and i'm going to teach this morality when they don't even know who jesus is i, I remember like one of the most i learned this early on when i was a seminary in my first year we had to teach um catechism and confirmation and as a bunch of kids on the north shore i said before we start anybody here does not believe in god raise your hand two two of them raised their hands and uh i said all right talk to me after class because you, why are you getting confirmed if you don't believe in God? we got to work through this problem. And so I met with both of them. One of them, almost instant conversion, on the spot, became the super devout Catholic, and she and I are still close, close friends. Uh, and just this wonderful woman, great, I mean, like a great example of the faith. Unbelievable. But that's the point. Like, again, it was God's grace that helped her to understand it, but... I'm not saying we don't preach morality, we don't talk about these things, but there's got to be evangelization. Just a there. So you said a very quick, very rapid conversion for her. What, what, how did you approach that, that her get to that? I don't fully remember. It was so long ago. But I, basically what it was is she was trying to be cool, listening to uh, her older brother who was in college and studying Buddhism, and just like... She, Oh man, Buddhism must be cool. And then I think I highlighted the resurrection and said, "Well, no, let's look at the person of Christ." And then that's what I said. I don't think it was what I said. I think it might have been. I just cared too. Might have been part of it. That's so long ago. I was at the PJs in Mandeville on the road, the road to Madisonville. I I I don't have much of a memory. That was almost 30 years ago. 25 is 30 years ago. The thing is, is but you know. You can follow the rules and then come to Christ, but often we can come to Christ and have the deeper conversion. Often oh, the rules fo- start following. I, I want to act morally. I don't want to hurt Jesus. I, I don't want to hurt others. It's because you encounter the lawgiver. encounter the messenger first. So you've got to pray. Uh, and, and, and as priests, to teach people to pray, to know and love him. Because I know and love Jesus, I'm aware of who I am as a beloved son. I act this way. There are certain ways Christians do not act. They just don't. We don't live a party lifestyle. We don't. We can party. We have a good time. I'm gonna give you a little quote from Ratzinger on that on Mardi Gras. We can party, have a great time, but it's that party lifestyle. We don't live a life of the flesh. Love has to animate what we do. We don't simply act out of obligation. Sometimes you've got to. There's a duty, there's a rule you've got to follow. But love for Christ and love for neighbor ought to animate. And while sometimes we just gotta will the good for the other. It doesn't mean that we can't feel good. There can't be joy. And what kind of love do we take to follow Jesus? Ideally, it's agape. Lord, I'm willing to die for myself. But like Peter on the shore. Lord, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Agape. Yes, Lord, I love you. Philia. Peter, do you love me? Agape. Yes, Lord, I love you. Philia. I love you as a friend. Finally, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Philia. And Jesus, Peter says, yes, I love you, Julia. It's cool with it. We're going to work on it until you can give yourself. But I think, too, you know, this, like, fall in love with Jesus. All right, Shaw, I'll be honest. Uh, that's lady talk. Uh, ladies fall in love with Jesus. I don't, I, don't, I don't fall in love with another dude. I mean, come on, y'all have got to have thought that. <laughs> I think it's an obstacle. Go tell people, you need to fall in love with Jesus. Jesus needs to be your spouse. Most guys in your parish are going to think you're weird. Now, I'm not saying that's not a, a wonderful way of saying things. I'm not saying you can but, like, following Christ as a friend. That's why I, I haven't watched all the episodes, but I like The Chosen. Jesus and his bros, all right? We don't fully really get it all the time, and he was patient with them. Peter didn't even get it after the resurrection. He's still an idiot. Jesus so is patient with us. So, like, hey, like, so, again, this love, like, if it means we start out, my son, Lord, I'm not ready to die for you yet, but I, I love you as a friend, and I want to get to know you as a friend. That's a great way to start. It's a great way to start. Let's have a beer together. That's that's good. But you got to spend time with him, and that's what prayer is. And it's like, okay, well, I've got to teach people how to pray, um, which of course is much more difficult. But we'll talk about that too when it comes to uh, when it, we come to the the lesson on spirituality. But but more than just to know and love him, but to know and experience his merciful love for you. As we go back to that's the transformation, whether it be directly or mediated through sacrament of confession, man, that's what changes us. Uh, I've seen the people who come to a secure root in their identity. They have had an encounter with not just the Lord's love is merciful love. At the times you were the weakest and the most fallen that the Lord either directly or through someone was shown mercy to you. That's what changes. That's what changes the heart. In my opinion, in my experience. But I'm right. It's just true. You'll see it when people come to you at their lowest. You cast them off and they'll never come back. Or you could say, let's try to find a way to make this work. Let's, let's do it. I'm going to listen to you. That, that empathic listening it opens the space to change hearts. So in conclusion, let's listen to John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor 19. This is not a matter only of disposing oneself to hear a teaching and obediently accepting a commandment. More radically, it involves holding fast to the very person of Jesus, partaking of his life and his destiny, sharing in his free and loving obedience to the will of the Father. By responding in faith and following the one who is incarnate wisdom, the disciple of Jesus truly becomes a disciple of God. So conformity of Christ is what? Conformity to his sonship. Now look, granted, there's daughtership too. Why was there a focus on sonship and not on daughtership? Why? And what is, the, why do they talk about sons and not daughters and adoption? Kind of the, looking at why like Jesus being like the only son of the father and kind of the trinitarian. True. However, there's something else. Daughters didn't inherit. But daughters inherit now. It's awesome. So we can talk about sons and daughters. Sonship is the inheritance of eternal life. And the adopted sons could even receive that inheritance. But you you become Christ. You become son, which means you are in relation to the father. So that's the the, the next part that we're going to look at when we come back next week. Is that relation to the Father, particularly this embracing of sonship or daughterhood. From my experience as we'll see, if you hate yourself, if you do not know yourself as a beloved son or daughter, moral life very, very difficult. Very difficult. But we learn to to fan into flame the gift that was given to us at baptism, that adopted sonship. We live out of identity. What does it mean? What does it look like? And think of it. I mean, in your own life or in people that you've encountered who you believe truly know that they are beloved sons and daughters of the Father and whom the Father delights. And I just loves him because God's supposed to love everybody. But he likes you. God actually likes you. Your next door neighbor may not like you, but he should like you. Because for him, not liking you means that somehow God doesn't like you. God likes everybody. Um, people got on Jesus' nerves, I'm sure, but he was loving. He, didn't, he does not like getting on my nerves. Um, but what are these qualities? Some, think about that. What are the qualities of sonship? Right, nah, granted, it's, it's all the stuff. And again, for those, most of you here who were in pre-theology last year. If you remember my retreat, you'll know what the qualities of sonship are because I talked about it. But the more we embrace that, it's that relation with the Father. So we're going to look at that. What does that look like? What does it look like here to be another Christ, but in relation to the Father? So we're trying to establish a Trinitarian basis. So this is the sequela, Christi, the Son, Christ, sonship in relation to the Father, your identity, and then finally a life in the Spirit. What does it mean to follow the instinct of the Spirit? So that adds sort of the Trinitarian basis of moral theology, which is not, we're going to get into the rules and we're going to get into all these things that we need to get into, but this is the the broader picture um, that I think, at least from experiential level, or pastoral level is important. How to get people to come to know their sonship and daughterhood, they can read scripture, they can learn it, but my experience is when you're feeling the most unlike it, the most unworthy of it, when you're hiding like Adam and Eve, and you still experience the merciful love, that's like, that, that really begins the transformation. Still love you. Still have hope in you. I'm not giving up on you. Unconditional. That's when the transformation begins happening. And we need priests who are like that. If you are insecure and you hate yourself, we don't need get secure. Just get secure. Go seek some therapy. We're going to talk about that. We need. We need that. We need to know the Lord loves us. We need to. We're going to have times of doubt, but you'll minister out of your own want instead of out of your own superabundance people are gonna I, I need you to, to make me feel good about myself we all need people to make us feel good about ourselves but you'll you'll'll you'll minister out of your own neediness rather than out of this confidence of your identity makes sense if it doesn't hopefully it will by the end of the semester any questions or comments so remember no rolling of the die this week we're gonna start next week so do your readings it will only not no testing on this week's readings but it'll be next week's yeah question about- Quizzes, when it comes to the questions that will be asked, do we have to memorize those, or they be good? To no, you can, this is what I said, you will have, take the sheet, You t- take it in front of you. What I would do if I were you, I would take the sheet and go through every reading and answer the questions already, and bring that to the test. You can, remember, you, can, you can't bring the readings to the quiz, but you can take your notes from the readings. Smart seminarians and nuns and lay people would read the readings with these questions in mind, which will actually help you to understand the readings better. And then come in. You can bring it with a sheet of paper or don't bring your reading and where you've already answered the questions. And just transfer it. That's it. That's all all it takes. Are we going to roll the die the the week Yeah, yeah. So so Wednesday, we'll let Joey roll it next week. So it'll be all your fault. You'll roll it. And you know, if it look five, no test. But you know how we're gonna do it. And then it will be no quiz. But if it is, then we'll roll. We may end up finding a more efficient way of tweaking it. Uh, but it'll be fun, and not as fun as those homilies, though. I can't wait for that. Uh, all right, any questions or comments, y'all? Can we place bets on the dice rolling? That's up to y'all. As long as I get, as long as I get half, the house gets half. Yeah. The questions are in the folder. The last thing I post is a shared folder, which will have the instructions for the Monte Carlo quiz. The questions will always be the same. So, and one of them, if you roll six, you can pick whichever one you want. So yeah, just what those are based off of, I can see if I can find it. They're based off this like pyramid of knowledge of how we should gain knowledge from readings and encounters with educational (laughs) objects the surface level to very deep learning. And each of the questions deal with one of the five levels. Uh, And this is the guy who came up with the Monte Carlo quiz about 20 years ago, was the one who who did this. So the real purpose is not just to test you, but that you read with these questions in mind, looking for arguments, looking for practical applications. Uh, Instead of, you can, I'm going to give you a 10 page thing. You can't read all of that and make sense of it. Look for the look for the answers and then write them down when you got them. Bring it to the test and you'll be done. That's why I'm not giving you more than five or six minutes. You should have most of the work done already. This will be fun. All right, y'all. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Was beginning, it is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. To the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.